This is the Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And this week is a special episode 198 plus. Yes, it's a bottle episode. Hello and welcome. And this week we're going to give you a, something a little bit different, something a little bit special, as this is a bottle episode in which we're going to be looking at some major news items and a deep dive as well as just the review. So not our usual episode as we build up to episode 200. And to be honest, I think, Andy, we're just trying to delay our time. It's like trying to avoid being older, isn't it? It's yeah. trying to, we're trying not to acknowledge that we're actually hitting that 200. We do want to celebrate that we're, we're getting to 200 episodes. But like I said, when we first said we're getting rapidly close to it, I think we've actually recorded about 220 episodes. We just call them different things every yes. now and then. Uh, but this is one of them due to unforeseen circumstances, which mean we have to cut it short today. But I will be trawling back through the old archives of shows to find some, some of our favourite picks of past deep dives or reviews to be able to drop in around our quick run through of general things so for those people who've answered our question of the week we'll roll that over to next week yeah so if you're still thinking and i know a few of our regulars still haven't answered us i'm looking at you Stephen. i'm looking at you carl so you've still got another week <laughs> to get back to us and uh let us know your answer to last week's question of the week which was to do with action sequences action sequences that blow you away be old ones new ones whatever choreography style whatever old or new we've had some great answers that i'm looking forward to discussing next week and i've got a good list that i want to talk about but we'll cover that next week so you've got another week to get back to us on that one guys you know how to get back to us don't you of course you do all you have to do is this head on over to social media platforms find us on there film file uk is what you want to be looking for the question of the week will be on there if you can't find the question just send us a direct message or you can email us podcast at filmfile.uk or if you're listening through spotify the question of the week was in the footnote of last week's show and i'll put it in the footnotes of this week's show and you can answer via there so what have we got for you on this week's show well we've got a mystery deep dive when you get there you'll know what it is we've got reviews of i've seen everything everything this week so i'm going to be bringing reviews of three films that i think are important that opened at the cinema zone of interest argyle and american fiction nearly all the big oscar tips yes one of these films is not like the others let's just say that <laughs> but without any ado let's go straight to this week's news Andy, a rundown of the box office before we do anything else I think is in order? Yes, it's not an exciting box office, but here's what it's looking like worldwide. So over in the US this week, Argyle opened in the top spot with 17.5 million. Not a strong start for a big budget production. The Chosen Season 4 Episodes 1 to 3 had a limited cinema run and took 5.9 million, showing that sometimes moving popular shows over to the big screen to showcase the new episodes pays off well in third place it's still creating a bit of a buzz the beekeeper 5.3 million added to its total wonka is in fourth place with another 4.7 million and migration takes fifth place for 4.2 million here in the uk it's migration that opened at the top spots this week 3.6 million is its opening total argyle opened in second place with just over 2 million mean girls is in third place with 843,000. All of Us Strangers in fourth with 797,000 and Zone of Interest opening in fifth place with 585,000. So Argyle, you know, you could say it's done well because it's hit the top. However, 
with the budget that it was thrown at it by Apple, that's not a good result. It's yep. not a good result at all. They're going to struggle to break even with this one. It might get, it might be relying on word of mouth, but trust me, the word of mouth out there has not been very good. But the thing to remember is, is Apple are with their film productions and their uh, TV productions. It's a secondary business for them. It's not the heart of their industry. Ultimately, is it? Well, they're moving more towards the cinema model distribution, and given like extended runs. I mean, uh, Scorsese recently had like almost three months clear at the cinema before they moved it onto their service. And they've done the same with Ridley Scott's Napoleon, that they've kept that at the cinema as long as it could before they moved it to the service. I think Argyle might end up dropping onto their streaming service swifter than those two films, because I don't think it's going to have legs at the cinema. Uh, as we speak, my other half is, is watching Argyle in the cinema, so maybe I could get them to do the review. Who knows? Who knows what they're going to think? Uh, there's a, a 10-year-old boy and, and, a, and a my easily distracted partner could, could go anywhere at this moment in time. <laughs> We're on the subject of streaming platforms. Netflix held its next on Netflix event last Wednesday in Los Angeles, previewing its TV series and film slates for the year ahead. And basically they confirmed a lot of things that we kind of already knew anyway. On the TV side, the most high-profile titles is a second season of Squid Game. There's The Diplomat, Arcane, The Night Agent, and the final seasons of Cobra Kai and The Umbrella Academy. Uh, we have discovered that it's going to be next year by the time we get to see Stranger Things. That has been confirmed. With with strikes and everything, I don't, I'm, not, I'm, not that, uh, I'm not that surprised. Yeah. Also coming to Netflix will be the third seasons of Bridgerton, Heartstopper, Sweet Tooth, Vikings Valhalla, and fourth seasons of Outer Banks and Emily in Paris. And there's also the new series on the way from the Terminator franchise, the anime series. There's also, as we're so looking forward to, Ripley, the Andrew Scott-led adaptation of the books. Yeah, that's top of my list. Top of our list. Kevin Knightley-led Spy Tale, Black Doves, and The Exploding Kittens Show. Um, on the film front, and I'm getting more interested in this as it's getting closer, Beverly Hills Cop Axel F has set a July the 3rd release date. Oh, they, haven't they pulled that forward? Wasn't that further down the line? It was further down the line, but um, they it, it's it's ready to go. And I, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful for it. Mark Wahlberg and Halle Berry's new film, The Union, the Benedict Cumberbatch-led Eric, and Jerry Seinfeld's all-star unfrosted the Pop-Tart story. Yeah, it's a sort of that one. In addition, Netflix chief content officer Bella Bajaria has confirmed that Netflix have no plans to move more products to a theatrical release model, aside from the occasional limited runs such as Glass Onion had or Maestro had. In these words, we're the only real pure play streamer and our members love films and they want to see films on Netflix. I think a lot of companies and businesses do theatrical and it's great business for them. It's just not our business. And that kind of like, you know, as we just said, that Apple are moving more of their stuff to the cinema first and giving it as much of a run as it needs before it comes on the service. And Amazon are starting to do that. Netflix, it's always going to be secondary, a secondary option for them. Basically, if one of the direct, directors working with them says, uh, excuse me, I want this on the cinema, like Ryan Johnson did with Glass Onion, they're going to do a limited run with them. So don't be expecting any of these to necessarily make it to the big screen, which I think is a shame when it comes to Beverly Hills Cop. I think yeah. maybe that could have been a good big screen outing. But I get that Netflix want to have the exclusivity on their service. Andy, you didn't mention uh, Rebel Moon 2, Scargiver. I wonder why. Yeah, moving <laughs> on. It, funnily enough, it seems that at the Netflix event, they didn't mention it either. So, oh, right. <laughs> mm. uh, curious, it'll still be getting released. But I think they've basically just gone, because uh, it did well on that first week. 
and then it's vanished off everyone's radar and no one's talking about it anymore. Almost like a typical Zack Snyder movie. <laughs> can, can I mention something I'm particularly excited for? What are you excited for? Well, as a, as a kid growing up in the 70s, we had the, not necessarily the best TV, but the most enjoyable TV concepts. Yes, we've got the Fall Guy, uh, Lee Major's show, given the big screen version with Ryan Gosling, which I know you and I are very excited about. And a film that's in development that I am so, so super excited for, if it comes off. And that is a big screen adaptation. Uh, it appears that David Leach is not just done digging into nostalgia for movies. He's now going back for TV series again, and he's developing a film based on the 1970s, one of my classic TV series of all time, Kung Fu, yes. with Donnie Yen lined up in the star, in, to star. That's written by Stephen Chin. If you remember the series, it ran from 1972 to 1975, starred David Carradine, as Kwai Chang Kane, a master martial artist who flees China after his master was murdered. And he wanders the Old West, basically righting wrongs and racism as well. Um, okay, mm. so it was, uh, it, it was looking back on it, it was a little bit awkward that you'd got an American playing a Chinese man. Uh, we know that uh, martial artist legend Bruce Lee had developed the original series. But anyway, I can't wait. There's been several TV versions of this. The legend continues. Uh, and recently there was an update with Olivia Ling as a young martial artist living in present-day San Francisco. But yes, please, I am so giddy. This was uh, uh, mentioned a few years ago with Bill Paxton set to direct. So fingers mm. crossed this is going to happen. Yeah, the scoring of Donnie Yen. Uh, is a huge plus for it because basically it gets him to it gets him to do an Ip Man kind of approach again. Yeah, it gets him to real. Yeah, and the guy's a master of uh, action sequences and martial arts sequences. He's he's absolutely fantastic. Great casting. I'm as excited as you are for this one. Uh, so that's one to look forward to. Couple of quick bits of news to rattle through. So first of all, the Beetlejuice poster landed this week, it and it's a very simple poster. It's just the ticker tape from the waiting line in the in the the bureau but with the highlighted numbers of the release date at the center of them and um, being held by a dead hand the title of the film has been confirmed to be beetlejuice beetlejuice you just gotta say which means if they make now. a third one they're gonna risk things yeah but, um, <laughs> with, with, with the poster coming out it's expected that the trailer is going to land pretty soon maybe next weekend over, over super bowl weekend or Superb Owl, as I now refer to it, thanks to uh, what we do in the shadows. The Superb Owl! Let's see. But everyone is getting very giddy at Beetlejuice coming out, and everyone is saying that that title is just perfect. Yeah. And right. it is. Uh, talking of Tim Burton, uh, he's yes. announced his next project, which is to direct a remake of Attack of the 50-Foot Woman uh, with Gillian Flynn uh, scripting. Uh, she of Gone Girl fame. Yes, a classic 50s sci-fi film where people always used to shrink or get growing, which we've seen done and um, homaged, even through things like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Honey, I Blew Up the Kid, was homaging those kind of films. And there was a sequel previously in the works, but it never got through the talks phase. HBO did the remake with Daryl Hannah yeah. in the 1990s. Which was kind of a spoof of those classic monster movies in the 50s. Uh, 50s monster thrillers and uh, it's not bad it's not bad it's a little bit tongue-in-cheek but this i'm looking forward to because i think burton will do it yeah in his own inimitable style quentin tarantino and brad pitt are going to team up again which will be for the third time yep. after they work together on inglorious bastards and once upon a time in hollywood for tarantino's next film which is titled the movie critic 
Uh, we still don't know details complete on the movie critic. All that we know is that it's going to be set around Southern California in 1977, revolving around a cynical movie critic. It's possible that Pitt might be playing that movie critic, or he may be playing someone within Hollywood, or he may even be playing the same character he played in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. We don't know at this point in time. What we do know, but I, I still think there's possibilities that plans will change. This is going to be Tarantino's last movie. Yes, he's allegedly. It's all come about because the fact that the industry is moving away from film stock and film stock is getting more and more expensive. So he basically limited himself saying, you know what, once I've done 10 films, that's it, I'm done. He basically won't direct films. Now, that hasn't ruled out the possibility of him directing TV series, and he's shown a lot of interest in doing things like that. I mean, even when Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, there was the proposed idea yeah. to add more chunks into it and TV serialise it, which never came to fruition. And he's contemplated cinema with Kill Bill 1 and 2 to be able to serialise additional stories in that universe. So he's not going to stop working. He's not going to stop creating, but he's going to stop making big screen outings because film is the most important thing to him. And if it all goes digital, he doesn't want to work with it. As we're talking about Argyle later on in the show, Bryce Dallas Howard is moving on from that. And along with Orlando Bloom, they're leading a comedy called Deep Cover, penned by Colin Trevorrow. Um, Colin Trevorrow's had an interesting career. Started off with a bit of a high for his indie hit, Safety Not Guaranteed. Uh, and then he jumped on to the Jurassic Park trilogy. And, uh, well, he did the first one, then he was out for the next ones, and then he was back. He was supposed to do a Star Wars and the last Star Wars movie, but uh, apparently he'd been difficult. But now, anyway, he's got uh, a comedy coming along titled Deep Cover. The film revolves around a trio of improv actors who take part in police stings, catching out unaware criminals, but soon they get soaked into London's criminal underworld thanks to the power of pure persuasion. Uh, the cast also features Ian McShane, Paddy Constantine, and Sheffield's very own Sean Bean. A couple of confirmed castings have come our way before we round off the news. First of all, it's been speculated and it's been expected, but Donald Glover confirmed this week that he is all in on the community movie, telling that he's been texting backwards and forwards with the creatives involved, and he's been told that the script is done, but it's not arrived in his inbox yet, so he's yet to read it, but he is in. So that means... Pretty much the whole team are back together, except for one, the problematic Chevy Chase. Well, let's hope he comes back. Uh, Paul Bettany has basically signalled that he is going to return as the Vision in Vision Quest. It's uh, take it just a little bit more than a pinch of salt, uh, but we'll wait and see when it happens. But it'd be good to see Bettany back in that role because there's more story to tell. And finally, Jim Curry is going to reprise his role as Dr. Robotnik for Sonic the Hedgehog 3. After the actor said that he was retiring from acting after the last film, clearly he was having us all on because he's he's basically quite happy to come back. Might be that there's been a big payday for him with regards to it, or it might be, like he said in the interviews, he just likes this character. Let's see. But before we leave the news, we've got uh, some sad news, and you've probably seen it. It's been everywhere because genre and cult legend Carl Weathers passed away this week at the age of 76 years old. Uh, Carl Weathers, actor best known for playing Apollo Creed in Rocky, began his career as a gridiron football linebacker, but it was the role in Rocky that shot him to fame. Carl Weathers starring in films such as Predator and Rocky, um, he passed away age 76 peacefully in his sleep, according to a statement from his family. In their words, Carl was an exceptional human being who lived an extraordinary life 
through his contributions to film, television, the arts and sport. He's left an indelible mark and is recognised worldwide and across generations. He was a beloved brother, father, grandfather, partner and friend. I mean, this is a guy, yes, he's iconic because of his turn in, in Rocky as Apollo Creed. And yes, when he teamed up alongside Arnold Schwarzenegger in The Predator, he he basically tried to compare muscles to Arnie. But in recent years, we've also seen him in a marvellous turn as uh, the Bounty Hunter Guild head, Grief Carger in The Mandalorian. And that was a marvellous role. I mean, that role scored him an Emmy nomination in 2021. Um, he's voiced Combat Carl in Toy Story 4. He led the 1988 action feature, Action Jackson. He was also in comedies such as Happy Gilmore and reprised that role again in Little Nicky. This is a guy who everyone of every generation will recognise for one thing or another, but the majority of us will recognise him just for Apollo Creed alone. Yeah. He turned to directing for The Mandalorian and um, he was on a, a career comeback, for want of a better term. Not that his career ever ended, but he was recognisable to a whole brand new audience and brought an elder statesman and presence to the role. Uh, it shall be missed. One of the films I, that we've not mentioned is I loved him uh, alongside Harrison Ford in Force 10 from Navarone, which is one of those films that I, I went to see with my dad. So I've got I've got such a, a fond memory of it. Uh, Carl Weathers was in that with a, a very young Harrison Ford. An actor that everybody's missed. I saw the very touching uh, soliloquy that uh, Sylvester Stallone gave uh, on social mm. media and an, an absolute pure, pure presence and, and someone who will be terribly, terribly missed by the, the film industry, by geeks alike. And he's one of those actors that comes along very rarely that makes such an impression. He leaves behind his ex-wife, Mary Ann, and two sons. And our, our condolences go out to everyone who knew him and to everyone who just loved the films and TV shows that he was in. And that, folks, sadly, that's the end of the news. You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And if you haven't already subscribed, please do so by heading over to your favorite podcast platform, leaving a like, and remember to hit that subscription button. You can get in touch with us by social media channels, Film File UK. We're mostly prominent on Facebook, Twitter, Mastodon, and Blue Sky. Or you can email us podcast at filmfile.uk. Love to hear from you. Love to hear thoughts on film. And now it's time for this week's mystery deep dive. Dive, dive, dive. So with the sad passing this week of Carl Weathers, we've decided to take a look back to one of our deep dives from episode 60, and that is the excellent action film Predator and the franchise that followed it. We are a rescue team, not assassins. Now, what do we got to do? In a part of the world where there are no rules. We pick up their trailer, the chopper, run them down, grab those hostages before anybody knows we were there. What do you mean we? Deep in the jungle, where nothing that lives is safe. You lose it here. You're in a world of hurt. Showtime, kid. Knock, knock. An elite rescue squad. You're bleeding, man. I ain't got time to bleed. <laughs> is being led by the ultimate warrior. We need the best. That's why you're here. But now... What's got Billy so spooked? There's something out there waiting for us. And it ain't no man. They're up against the ultimate enemy. Holy mother of God. 
Nothing like it has ever been on Earth before. She says the jungle just came alive and took him. We cannot see it. No blood, no bodies. We hit nothing. But it sees the heat of our bodies and the heat of our fear. Whatever it is out there, it killed Hopper. And now it wants us. It kills for pleasure. He will skin the lion! It hunts for sport. He's killing us one at a time. We're all gonna die. But this time, it's picked the wrong man to hunt. If it bleeds, we can kill it. This week, our deep dive is not into one film, but into a series of films, starting with the 1987 American sci-fi action film directed by John McTiernan and starring the man himself at the height of his power, Arnold Schwarzenegger. And that film is Predator. And boy, (laughs) do we have love for Predator. Andy, I mean, you've watched this recently. Yes. Probably more so than I have. Before we talk about it, has Predator, the first film, held up yes very much so i popped this on every few years and when i popped it on this time it was like like i tend to do when we're going to be talking about it on the show it's like okay i'm going to put my critical head on i'm going to see if there's anything to not like about the film but man this is a film that was written on a script out of pure testosterone it's packed with a cast that eat and drink testosterone for their meals (laughs) and it's a pure unashamed macho fest and it knows it from the muscle off between dutch played by arnie and dylan played by carl weathers at the start of the film to lines of dialogue about being a goddamn sexual tyrannosaur or not having time to bleed it could be easy to write this film off as pure dumb action fun and it is but it's the kind of pure dumb action fun that's just perfect it's utterly immersive and engrossing the characters are what make this film even though they're all meatheads, you kind of like each of them and you kind of root for all of them as a result. You don't get to meet them for a long period before they start getting picked off one by one. But you genuinely care for this group of Marines sent in on a, like a, a mission to extract. And that's where the film is smart. It's the way that it sets up. Yeah, I mean, as a plot, it's a fantastic, it's a fantastically simple plot. Uh, a spacecraft flies near to Earth and releases an object which enters the atmosphere. Sometime later, in a Central America uh, beach, Dutch, a retired Vietnam veteran played by Arnie, and his elite mercenary rescue team are tasked to rescuing a foreign cabinet minister and his aides who have been held hostage by insurgents. So you've got this one half of the film, which was a kind of very, very typical archetype of that particular 80s period of being this uh, all guys together action a kind of buddy war movie that then moves into the science fiction territory. And it does that so well. And that's why it works. That's why it's still a classic by having that seamless introduction of the predator uh, and making what probably the hardest men on the planet suddenly become the victims. And that's where the fun begins there, where no matter how much firepower these guys have, no matter how much testosterone they're carrying around in their huge muscular forms, they can't beat or initially can't beat this this almost superhuman alien killer. As the film was originally called The Hunter, he does a, the Predator does exactly that. He hunts them down. The concept for the Predator stalking them and taking them out one by one, it is pure slasher horror movie concept, but given a sci-fi spin. 
because you have the faceless killer that you don't actually see for most of the film. You just see quick glimpses of. And it's only towards the end that you get to unmask the killer. This is a horror film, first, sci-fi, second. And so the characters are important. The marvellous design work of The Creature Itself by Stan Winston has to get a shout out here because what a great concept. Um, Apparently, he got the idea for some of the design from it from a conversation he'd had previously with James Cameron when he was working with him on earlier films, uh, particularly the mandibles that the Predator has on his face. Yeah, it's an iconic look, and it's an iconic look that that's, that's why it's so popular. I mean, if you don't get the creature right, then it instantly becomes a forgettable film. There's been some great science fiction horror movies, but to have a memorable villain like that, that can be plastered all over T-shirts, you can make action figures of, you can have models of, then that's when you know that it works and it, and it has, it, it just carries that iconic legend to it. I mean, the interesting thing about this film, it was, um, it started on the back end of a joke that was circulating around Hollywood that since uh, the end of Rocky Four, who was Rocky Balboa going to fight next? And, and it was joked that if we had him fight an alien in the fifth film, um, that would, would take it into an entirely new area. And, and scriptwriters Jim and John Thompson basically took their inspiration from that joke and wrote the screenplay, which was originally called Hunters. And But I think it's it's the fact that Joel Silver was behind it, who was at that point the biggest mega producer, who knew how to how to make great action movies. That and working with John Mike Tiernan, who's just brought, as he did, and this was his, his kind of showcase for, for Die Hard, brings a, 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 a comic book humour to it, uh, which is never campy. Uh, and just in the same way that Die Hard has got some, it's got some real laugh out loud moments of it and strange offbeat jokes in it. This works as well because of that. And of course, the fact that you've got Arnie, who was at the top of his game, the most recognisable star in the world at that particular point. It, it was destined to good things. It nearly went astray very early on with the design of The Predator when Jean-Claude Van Damme uh, had been originally cast to play the creature and went on an, uh, an intense training course and he would bring his martial arts and his physical action to it and, and to make the Predator very agile and almost ninja-like, but it, it didn't really work. And and it, it became more apparent that he wasn't phys- physically imposing enough to take on people like Schwarzenegger and Weathers. And then they recast it with the same actor, Kevin Peter Hall, who played uh, Bigfoot in Harry and the, Harry and the Hendersons, uh, who at seven foot two had that imposing, if not the, the huge physique, which was made out through the modeling, but the size to be able to look down on those big guys. And it is just a film that is a time capsule of the period that it was made, but because it works, it, it doesn't matter when it came out. Uh, and, and like any great film, it had to create a franchise. And then we went into Predator 2. So Predator 2 shifted the events to 1997, which at the time that the film came out was the future. And for me, I remember when I first saw this at the cinema and even then I was like, oh, that was a bad move because in order to make things look near futuristic, it's things like bolting extra attachments onto guns for no point at all, which have no purpose, but it makes him look futuristic. Guns don't transform that much over a 50 year period, let alone 10 years. And the film looks dreadfully 80s as a result. And when I say dreadful, I mean, it looks cheap and nasty, like a low rent Robocop setting rehashed for a monster movie. The film takes more influence from the Robocop franchise than what it did from Predator because it tries for the political satire aspect, echoing the LA riots of the time 
and playing out the idea of gangs versus cops to the extreme and an in-your-face news station getting the certificate dirt on everything. It kind of forgets that it's supposed to be a Predator film. Aside from it being really hot, everyone is very sweaty in this film. And there's an invisible monster. You see, I'm the opposite. I really like Predator 2 and I think it was the worthy, it's a worthy sequel, uh, the way that Aliens does, by by slightly shifting it in, in another direction. Uh, I like the LA setting and I, I get that it's only 10 years after 1997 is, is a very different 1997 than what we remember about Los Angeles. But I like the fact that the Predator is now in, in the concrete jungle. And, and I know it, it, it did only moderately at the box office and it got generally mixed reviews. But I quite like the fact that they did something very, very bold with it. And they expanded on who the Predator is and, and you know, tying it in with the Jamaican and Colombian drugs lords. Uh, I thought that the casting of Danny Glover was great. I know they originally wanted to get Schwarzenegger back. There's even talk of Patrick Swayze as the lead, but I think the casting of Danny Glover gives it that sort of hard, almost noir edge. And the fact that uh, I've got an ex-girlfriend who's in the movie makes me like it that little bit more. But I've really got a lot of love for Predator 2. I've not seen it in a long time, so I know it's going to look dated and and I'll take all that on board. But I thought the fact that they did something different, I thought it, it, it it was a bold sequel that, nearly almost nearly gets there i have no qualms with it shifting the setting to an urban setting it's the tone of the film is so different to the original film it just doesn't feel like part of the same franchise at the predator itself bizarrely attacks in partly invisible ways for some reason all of its weapons end up on full show when it's attacking because it wants to showcase off the effects more than anything else it forgets that it's supposed to be the predator hunting people so why would his spear be visible floating in the air as he's about to attack. It makes no sense. And the Predator itself seems to be quite fond of being seen this time around. Every time someone spots his strange shimmering, he stands there and is pretty much just stood there going, yeah, okay, keep looking at me, keep looking at me. And then we'll deliberately jump ahead so that someone else can see them. I don't get the aspect. They were trying to show off the special effects more than anything else. I think that's where the problem is. Cast are great. Danny Glover is fantastic. He plays that grizzled, aging cop routine perfectly and he he fits well in here bill paxton plays a smarmy yet strangely charming and heroic character which is just bill paxton yeah and he's he's severely underused and i would have loved to have seen more from him gary Boosie plays well gary Boosie. (laughs) let's be honest he just plays himself in every film and it's got all the cliches of the action genre because it doesn't do anything new it doesn't do anything original it just regurgitates all the staple cliches of the genre action genre that it's trying to do i get what they were doing that they were trying to do what alien and aliens did that there were two different kind of films different approaches one's a horror one's an action film but i don't think it quite worked as well and it was probably more because stephen hopkins might have been a bit out of his element i mean this is the guy who gave his nightmare on elm street five he didn't have a good track record. It would be a few years later when he gave us Judgment Night, and that's when I suddenly went, wow, this guy's actually got some potential talent. Let's jump ahead now to 2010, to when you mentioned Predators 3, and I scratched my head thinking, I don't remember a Predators 3. Of course, there was the film Predators. This time follows an ensemble cast of characters again, uh, with Adrian Brody in the lead as Royce, a mercenary who appears alongside a group of other proficient killers in an unidentified jungle. They find that they've been abducted and placed on a planet which acts as a game reserve for two warring tribes of extraterrestrial killers and they actively look for a way to survive and hopefully return to Earth. 
uh, produced by Robert Rodriguez, uh, directed by Nimrod Antel. This was a, a surprising take on the Predator story. And the fact that they've, with each film, a little bit like Alien itself, they've gone in a completely different direction. It kind of underwhelmed at the box office, but I've got a lot of love for this one, again, because I think they did something different with it. Rodriguez produced this based on a script that he'd written back in the early 90s when he was working on Desperado because he was pitching to try to make this sequel and it took almost two decades before he finally got a chance to see it visualised. And he saw it as a film that would ignore the second film but would be a direct sequel to the original. And you can see that in it. It's, it starts off with a jungle setting and it's only after about 20 minutes that we suddenly get the reveal as like, this isn't Earth. We just thought it was. And that's when it starts to play with the mythology. It builds up that there's different kind, different clans and tribes of predators that aren't necessarily working together. It whole, has this whole aspect of not just humans, but also beasts are getting captured and dumped on this planet as a hunting ground for anything that's a, a natural killer. And whereas the first film had, like like I've mentioned, the cast of characters were all likable. You kind of took to them. You want, you rooted for them. You get to learn over this film that all of these, these lot are selfish and quite nasty people. And it adds a different spin because there's not just the aliens hunting them. You don't quite trust each other. And they're trying to band together. But one or two of them basically would kill you while you're asleep. There's a great cameo in this by Lawrence Fishburne, which unfortunately, as good as the cameo is, it breaks the film down a bit in the middle and it slows down the pacing a slight bit. It drags on a bit unnecessarily. And I read stories that apparently they wanted Arnie to cameo in the film. And I That's wonder right. whether this was supposed to be the role that Arnie would have played because he's playing someone who's been captured by the Predators and survived for many, many seasons of hunting against them. And it would make sense, especially when you see the traps that Lawrence Fishburne's character had set up. They are the same traps that Arnie was setting up in the first film. I think that is, is true. I've read a very early, I've read two versions of the script. I've read the Rodriguez one and I've read the rewrite by uh, by the writers who ended up getting credit for it. And, and Rodriguez always did want to bring in uh, Arnie to, to replay Dutch. And, and I think if, if memory serves me right, you, uh, you, you're spot on with that. But it, it's a lot of fun. It's, um, it, it adds more to the Predator mythos. Um, I don't think it feels out of place with, with the second one. I like the idea that it's set in a jungle again. And it, I like the fact that it, it gives you familiarity and then does something absolutely unique with it. And uh, it's a shame that it, it didn't become a, a, a bigger hit. I know it did okay. But um, it's a shame that it just wasn't wasn't the hit that it that it deserved to be. Because unfortunately, after that, that and now we have to move on to the Predator, which I haven't seen because you talked me out of it. <laughs> even though I am a huge, absolutely huge mental uh, Shane Black fan and Fred Decker fan, so I'm going to let you rant now. <laughs> I covered the Predator in a lot of detail in one of the early episodes, and I think it's also on the compilation of just the reviews number three when um, you can hear the full review. But the biggest problem with this film is I'm a huge Shane Black fan. And it was clear when watching it that Shane Black had been reined in a bit and he hadn't had full control over this film because it feels disjointed. It feels like a mess of ideas. If I was to say that I didn't like Predator 2 that much when I rewatched it, Predator 2 would be a five out of five film compared to The Predator which would be a two out of five at best. That's how bad the film is. It tried to be funny 
and failed. It tried to have great action moments, which didn't quite work. They were they were really hidden in dark settings. There's no consistency to the story, and it tries to be really clever towards the end with a like a big mystery item that's been found and discovered, and when it opens up, and it's like, oh, we're setting up a sequel. And that's where it lets itself down in the same way that the recent Terminator films have all tried to be the first part of a three-part series and failed by forgetting they're supposed to just be a film on their own. The Predator suffers from franchise-itis. It wants to be a start of a new franchise. And in doing so, it lays out so many little nuggets that it will never pay off. A mess of a film. We should uh, bear an honorary mention to... Predator versus Alien or Alien versus Predator, depending on on whose team you're on. Uh, I quite like the first uh, first one by one of your directors. That you actually enjoy his work, which is uh, Paul, Paul W. S. Anderson. Um, I think it's much maligned. It clearly, clearly is uh, a B movie with the idea to to rip off. It does more harm, I think, to the Alien franchise than it does to the yeah. Predator franchise. It worked in in some ways that it was set in a uh, a, a setting where they were trapped and the characters couldn't get out of. I think there was a lot of interesting moves with it. There were some points which kind of just really let it down with some of the mythos, like how long it took took the uh, the face huggers to 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 grow and in inside its victims. But I I, I didn't hate it. I, I've not got a lot of love for it, but it, it felt consistent. And you know, it's not the first time you've had horror characters team up and, and fight each other. I'm looking at you universal with Wolfman versus Van, uh, Dracula versus Frankenstein, etc., etc. So it, it does have its moments and, and there's, there's more to it that I like than I, than I dislike, but that then leads us into Requiem, which I think, I think anybody would, would could, couldn't put the hand up and say they liked. I remember when Requiem was getting trailered and everyone who I knew was like, oh, this looks amazing. And I was like, have you seen the same trailer as me? Because that looks like a dark mess. And it turned out the whole film was just a dark mess. You can't see anything. It's so poorly shot. It's It tries to go for the bloody and gruesome as opposed to the scary and chilling. Yeah, I'm not going to talk much about Alien vs. Predator Requiem, except to say that what a disaster. And I'm so glad that they never got any more Alien vs. Predator films to take it any further. It is just an embarrassment, isn't it? It's had a mean streak to it and a black sense of humour, which which didn't pay off. It makes it makes the first Aliens versus Predator look like an, an absolute classic by comparison. And you're right, it was it was a, a great job that it that it ended there. But it seems that the whole Predator franchise is not dead, as there's talk of of it coming back in in some some new form. Yeah, much like any of these uh, great sci-fi monster series, there will always be someone looking for another story to tell. And the comic books and novels that have spun off from the franchise shows that there are stories to tell, but it needs a studio to have the confidence to let a story be told without interfering. It appears that the fifth Predator film is to be directed by Dan Trachtenberg, who who brought us actually the great uh, uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane. And this has been muted, has been set in the American Civil War. So an interesting premise. And I think the thing about The Predator is... It has a history and you can play out at any point in, in, in Earth history, whether it's the past, the present, or even the far-flung future of Los Angeles, 1997. So that's the Predator series. You can't keep a good Predator down. Unless you've got like an electro mesh net. <laughs> <laughs>
we'll be back with our proper episode next week and another deep dive. But now it's time for this week's reviews. And Andy has been doing doing all the good work and seeing, well, everything. Literally everything that came out this week. I said last week that there was so much coming out, it was going to be a struggle. By Tuesday, I'd seen everything. <laughs> so it wasn't that much of a struggle. I'm going to start my reviews. And for those who watch the YouTube channel, keep an eye out on there because I will be dropping my review of migration onto the YouTube channel alongside the reviews that take are taken from this show. You've got to watch just the reviews and not the news on on YouTube. A, to build up our following, because that's what we love you to do, but because it's so darn entertaining. Um, and Andy does a fantastic job of sectioning these uh, reviews out and dropping them down for your delectation every week. Masterful job. Give it the love it <laughs> deserves, folks. Give it the love. Anyway, Andy, what have we got for you this week? Should we, are you just going to jump in with Argyle? Because you've sort of set it up for this week. I'll jump in with Argyle. The greater the spy, the bigger the lie. Who are these people? Argyle. 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 It's time for you to meet the real Agent Argyle. Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. Agent Argyle. I've got a fair bit of love for Matthew Vaughan over the years. From his early outing with Layer Cake, through his X-Men films, to the Kingsman series of films, I've had a lot of fun with his style and the flourish that he brings to all of his output. With Argyle, he looked set to be tapping into the spirit and energy of his Kingsman series, delivering a spy caper with its tongue firmly in its cheek. Reclusive author Ellie Conway, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, finds herself suddenly drawn into the real world of spies by an agent named Aiden, played by Sam Rockwell. And it appears that this new spy novel that she's currently working on seems to be predicting real-world espionage events. And now, a dark agency named The Division want to capture her to help them find the location of the McGovern. Sorry, the Master King. Q, almost two hours and 20 minutes of stylized action, plot twists and witty dialogue in that Vaughan manner. When I say plot twists, I mean a plethora of plot twists that drop continuously through the film to such a degree that by the midpoint, i kind of given up caring what was actually going on, as I was pretty sure that some other twist or reveal would come along and pretty much undo any of the earlier peril. Which is a shame, as the cast tied up in it have an absolute delight. Rockwell, as ever, is a scene-stealing perfection, with great comic timing and the charm that carries a lot of the film. Howard is fabulous for the most of the film, stumbling on a couple of moments, but generally playing an excellent central performance. The wide array of faces that join them all lend something. Brian Cranston and Catherine O'Hara stand out. Henry Cavill, as the fictional Argyle of the books, pops up intermittently and strikes a cool presence, but never really makes a dent. And the rest of the array of cast all have brief, but generally entertaining scenes that should raise a smile or two. However, the film is a perfect example of everything wrong with movies made by streaming services. As an Apple production, this was initially planned for direct release to the streaming service. And much like other streaming movies on Netflix or Amazon, it appears that the creator, in this case Vaughan, is given a lot more freedom than they would usually be offered. Now, when someone like Scorsese gets full freedom, he delivers well. Having honed his own craft for editing perfectly over the years and being very self-critical on what works and what doesn't. But when someone like Vaughan gets creative freedom, a guy who's known for his exuberance and outlandish comedy. The result 
is a pretty self-indulgent and almost smug film that doesn't quite know when to stop. Don't get me wrong, the visual flair on offer here does lift the whole thing, and the charming chemistry between Howard and Rockwell keeps things together just about. And one standout action moment in the last act is simply beautiful to watch, and that's a fine example of Vaughan at its creative best. But there's at least half an hour too much film here, and far too many twists and turns that make the whole thing feel somewhat exhausting. It's like being stuck on a great roller coaster. There comes a point when it no longer feels fun and you just want to get off. Argyle entertained me, don't get me wrong, but it also beat me into submission at the same time. It, it looked very much to me romancing the stone plus. Plus, plus, plus. It just goes all over the place. It, it's one of the problems is it doesn't know exactly what it wants to be. Um, so it's just Matthew Vaughan having fun, thinking that he's clever with loads of rug pulls, which grow tiresome. It's exactly like you get with the Netflix action films, that there's too much too much getting thrown on screen and not enough editing. I have an on and off love of Matthew Vaughan. When he's on top form, I think he does great stuff. Lair Cake was his, his, I think is still a great film where he was learning how to how to tell a great story. Kick-Ass, I enjoy. First Kingsman, okay. Uh, I enjoyed it. The X-Men film, I think it's one of the best X-Men films. Yes. Um, Stardust, I think is fantastic. I think it's assured. I think it's clever. I think it's witty. It's slightly overlong, yeah. but I've got a lot of time for it. The rest of the Kingsman movies, no. Uh, I didn't enjoy Kick-Ass 2. And I just think it becomes indulgent. And the indulgent Matthew Vaughan is what I'm expecting with this. And, uh, um, and those are the elements that put me off of his films yeah the indulgence is exactly what you get with that so entertaining but immediately dismissible by the end of it and will i ever watch it again probably not but if you are going to think of seeing it it probably is worth watching on the big screen because it is a spectacle is it as bad as ghosted oh it's better than ghosted oh good i just wanted to check i mean that that was a that was a battle scraper that was a dog's dinner we'll move on to my pick of the week and that is the holocaust film Zone of interest. There have been films about perpetrators, and a lot of those examples have shown perpetrators quite villainous, you know, um, not us. So I wanted to avoid the artifice of cinema. I wanted to look at them more forensically. He said, We don't want to make this like a movie set. There was no lighting, there was no film gear on the set, only like cameras. So they wired the whole house with the cameras. Some of them were hidden, some of them were visible, but no camera people were behind it. We were all in a trailer, over the wall, basically. How it affects the acting, you definitely knew you were all alone with the history, with all the things that were present in that house that I cannot even explain. It was really important, critical in fact, for the entire project to be as close to the truth as one could possibly get to create present tense as an experience and also allow the audience to be able to project themselves onto these people and see themselves. Very easy to see these people committing genocide and thinking they're monsters. That's not me, I'm safe. But they didn't start as mass murderers. They started as boyfriend and girlfriend having dreams about their future what they wanted for themselves is not that dissimilar to what everybody wants. And the whole idea of this project was to be confronted by a reflection of ourselves on some level. Jonathan Glazer's latest film is a powerful tale set against the backdrop of the Holocaust and focuses on the Nazi commandant of Auschwitz, Rudolf Hoss. 
played here by Christian Friedel, and his wife Hedwig, played by the marvellous Sandra Huller, as well as their children in their luxury life next door to the camp. Adapted from the novel by Martin Amis, which used fictional characters inspired by Hoss and his family, Glazer chose to spend a few years researching Hoss and worked with the Auschwitz Museum to read through testimonies from survivors who spoke of working in the Hoss household. The end result is a powerful look at one of the most horrific times in human history from a viewpoint of the privileged, with a cold and almost mundane look at how Hoss and his family continued their everyday lives, disconnecting themselves from the events that were transpiring over the wall that joins their garden to the camp. As the film begins, the film title appears on a black card before the letters fade away to absolute blackness, which we, as an audience, are then sat in for a sustained period of time as sounds start to rise and emerge. And it was clear at this moment that this is a film in which the sound mix was going to be the emotionally important element. As the film began and visually were treated to a beautiful home and garden with framing that utilises horizontal and vertical lines to capture almost postcard perfect images at times. Glazer and Lucas Zal cinematography bringing primarily static shots with gentle movements along lines throughout. The sounds became ever more important. We begin to hear trains moving off screen. We hear occasional cries and frequent discharges of weapons amongst other sounds carried over the wall that leave our minds to work out what horrors are actually taking place. We never see the atrocities being committed. The closest visually is the smoke columns permanently billowing out in the background and the nighttime glow of the furnace permeating the windows of the beautiful house the Hoss family reside in. The family are utilised here to show how a nation of people seemed to disassociate themselves with the horrors that their nation were actually committing at the time. And there's an early scene discussing a new oven for the camp, which no mention of lives is made. Instead, only units that can be processed every few hours, which when coupled with the early scenes of the Hoss family picking out new clothes from the camp to add to their own personal wardrobes, whilst we hear more and more sounds coming from over the wall, it creates an unsettling nature, something the film continues to balance perfectly throughout. Yes, we are seeing privileged and genuinely terrible people live out their normal day-to-day -day life, seeing Hoss's work as though he's just the manager of a standard factory. But never does the film let us become as cold and disassociated as the family were. One of the extended family, Hedwig's mother, arrives at a brief time and shows genuine horror at what is going on over the wall of the camp, showing how those who were further removed from the atrocities that went on would be shocked and surprised when confronted with the true nature that the propaganda machine is covering up. But in general, Everyone appears oblivious to what is occurring, despite the sounds that can be heard resonating almost 24 hours a day. By presenting such a horrific period in history in such a mundane manner, Glazer manages to tap into the heart-rending true horror without ever needing to show us visually anything terrible. He lets us draw from the coldness and see the horror in how human nature can adapt to be able to commit such atrocities. Powerful and deeply moving. This is a must-see film that has sat with me ever since watching it. Jonathan Glazer is one of those very interesting directors who always, always goes left of centre for every every story he tells, right back to to uh, Sexy Beast. I didn't know an awful lot about this until it just sort of crept up because we're getting all the nominations, mm. it was getting all the good reviews, but we'd not talked about it. 
uh, on the show and it just sort of happened and arrived and yeah. arrived with all this plaudits but but from what you're telling me andy utterly utterly deserved utterly deserving it's my favorite out of the oscar best picture nominations it sat with me since i've watched it i've still got it at the back of my mind nagging away at me it's that kind of film that really sits with you afterwards and makes you think a beautiful looking film but horrifying sound it's just such a such contrasting stuff um and after i watched zone of interest i worked a shift and then needed something to lighten my mood before i went home at the end so i then stayed around to watch another film which is american fiction too few books were about my people where's our representation would you read an excerpt yo sharonda girl you be pregnant again Critics are calling American fiction a masterpiece. I'm sure white people on the Hamptons will delight in it. We will. They, we, it's going to be huge. And now, the Washington Post has named it the best picture of the year. All successful writers are tormented by their families. You look fat. Okay. American fiction. Drawn from the novel Erasure by Percival Everett, American fiction follows a frustrated novelist professor who, annoyed at the popular representation of black culture in the mass media, writes a deliberately outlandish satire of the type of black books that have permeated culture, only to then find it becomes a runaway success. In the early moments of the film, we're presented with Jeffrey Wright's Thelonious Monk Ellison delivering a lecture to his students, presenting them with the N-word on the board behind him, which one of the white students shows discomfort with and asks him to remove it resulting in him angrily telling the student that if he can get over it, then surely she can be able to. The scene is at once hilarious, but also outlines the basis for which this satire builds, as it takes a swipe at how it is predominantly white liberal media that have propelled trashy stereotypes of black people in struggling ghetto and crime stories to mass attention through somehow feeling that not paying attention would somewhat cause offence to black people. Meanwhile, as pulpy, tragic youth novels gain popularity, such as Wheeze Lives in the Ghetto, the fictional bestseller from Dua Lipa's author, Sintara Golden, stories from black writers such as Monk are largely ignored and find themselves buried away from the black stories sections of libraries and bookstores. As Monk writes his own trashy novel, My Pathology, which gets an hilarious name change later on in the film, he initially hopes publishers will see it for what it is, a mocking contempt of their output, which will hopefully make them sit up and realise what trash they are promoting. But when he gets an offer for publishing, he and his agents have to create a fake persona for Monk, that of former convict Stag R. Lee, for the author to hide behind. Throughout the film, themes of black culture and white guilt play out in a light-hearted and genuinely laugh-out-loud funny nature. Wright is absolutely perfect in the central role, delivering not only the angry humour of the frustrated author, but also the sentimental family drama aspect in his interactions with his mother, sister and brother, as their family lives are hit with personal drama. All the cast are marvellous. Special mention goes out to John Ortiz as Monk's agent Arthur, who's hilariously placed within this. Issa Rae as fellow author Sintara Golden is absolutely magnificent. And Leslie Uggams as Monk's mother, brings a lot of heartfelt emotion to the film. And the film overall pops along at a fun pace, never misses a beat when it can drop a subtle moment of wit or pauses for impact as a zinger of a line drops. Writer and director Cord Jefferson's first big screen outing 
is a confidently told and socially relevant satire of mass media and the banality of the popular products that are mass promoted at the expense of more important stories. It becomes everything it mocks in a hilarious and thought-provoking manner, and it's well worth checking out. So that's Andy's reviews, uh, and there are plenty of things. If you've been thinking, what can I go to the cinema to watch this week? Well, hey, check out Andy's recommendations because those are the cream of the crop. But Andy, what have we got to come out and look forward to this week? At cinemas, on limited release for one day only as Occupied City, Turning Red finally gets its cinema release, maybe two years too late. Uh, Pixar's film that was buried onto the streaming service. Given them a chance to come back. It's beautiful to watch. I might catch this while it's on the big screen. But the film that I'm most looking forward to next week is The Iron Claw. So I will be talking about that next week. Try and get to see that one. I'm looking forward for that one as well. On Now TV and Sky, I quite enjoyed it. It's a bit disposable. Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken is an animated Mm. family adventure. It's okay. okay. Desperation Road is also on Now TV and Sky. Ted Season 1 and Curb Your Enthusiasm Season 12. This is the last season, isn't it? It is. Final Curb. And also the Superb Owl will be on next weekend um, at Super Bowl. Sorry. Uh, Tune in at the midway point of that for the trailers that we're most interested in. Forget the sport. It's all about the trailers on the midway point. Over on Netflix, The Outfit gets two big thumbs ups from me. Well worth checking out. Green Book gets a tenuous thumbs up from me. It's problematic, but it's not a bad film. And over on Amazon, we've got Upgraded which is a rom-com that sees a smart and ambitious art enthusiast with dreams of running her own gallery, sent on her first work trip and gets unexpectedly upgraded to first class. Looks like it should be a, a nice little nice little one to sit and have a date night with. Over on Disney+, Plus, you probably missed it at the cinema because it seems that everyone did, but The Marvels lands on Disney+, Plus this week, and we both recommend that we you do. watch The Marvels. Don't listen to so the haters. So it's not a bad week ahead for both streaming and cinemas. So because this is our bottle episode, no neat things for this week. But hey, don't worry, we've not forgotten because we know how much you like our neat things. But we will be back next week with a, well, a proper show made by proper geeks. (laughs) Or will it be episode (laughs) (laughs) 198.6? If we can just keep 200 at bay for another couple of weeks. We'll be back with a proper deep dive next week. It's one of Lee's favourites that we're going to be deep diving next week. And I rewatched it this week just in anticipation. So I can't wait to talk about it. Oh, no. Now you see, I'm all upset as <laughs> to what it could possibly be. <laughs> so, Andy, we'll see everyone next week. And let's just say it's something I believe in. Hey.